This is London Weekend Television broadcasting from the London transmitters of the Independent Broadcasting Authority. Before we look at the seven songs that took part in the only televised pre-selection in Eurovision history, we need to do a little timey-wimey business and go back. Back to the end of 1991. 1991? Yes, a Laura indeed, and I know it's not the done thing to remind people of this, but this... ...was effectively the last Yugoslav entry. Not six weeks later, Slovenia and Croatia decided that they'd had enough and wanted to go their own way. Yes, quite. Though as we all know, it wasn't quite as nice and straightforward or as flippant as that. By the time the 1992 contest rolled around, everyone but Serbia and Montenegro had decided to be independent. But what then passed for Yugoslavia held a national final as though nothing had happened. Sent extra Nena on the 9th of May, and then 21 days later, the UN passed Resolution 757, banning Yugoslavia from participating in sport and, by extension, cultural events. The EBU got rid of them on June the 30th of that year. It wasn't just Yugoslavia that had crumbled. The Soviet Union was also breaking apart. This had started with the coup of 1991, leading to the dissolution of the country on Christmas Day. The breakup of this country, though, didn't hit our contest immediately. The Eastern Bloc, except for Yugoslavia, had never expressed any overt wish to sing in the Eurovision Song Contest because, mainly, of the Iron Curtain and the fact that OIRT in its Eurovision facsimile Intervision were quite happily being insular. That all changed when Intervision suddenly had 15 newly carved republics and their myriad of what were until then sub-national broadcasters all descending and they didn't want to be led by Mother Russia but go their own way. Yes, indeed, yes. And so, on the 1st of January 1993, OIRT and the EBU merged together, and clearly, when I say merge, I mean that the Western European TV exchange ate the Eastern Bloc whole. The EBU was now, suddenly, the one with not only these 15 new republics to shoehorn in, but the four ex-Yugoslav ones that were allowed to join as well. This meant that literally overnight, a song contest with the potential maximum entrance set at 23, as it was done in 1992, was looking far too small to cope with this expansion and something had to be done. The first thing Frank Neff did was to leave the EBU stage right, but before he was tied up and forced to watch Toto until he was good, his EBU decided that they were to allow the 22 previous year's participants who weren't calling themselves Yugoslavia back in, and in tandem, to raise the maximum number of songs from 22 to 25. This definitely created breathing space, but it wasn't going to be enough. A massive 19-song pre-selection could have been a real possibility, but, thankfully, this was assuaged by the fact that most of the Soviet Union were more interested in existing rather than getting their mugs onto television. The exceptions to this were Estonia, who, in common with the rest of the Baltics, never believed they were part of the Soviet Union in the first place and knew they had to reassert their nationhood internationally, and this was the best way of doing it. Three more ex-Eastern Bloc countries, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia, thought likewise, 
as did three of the four Yugoslav republics, Croatia, Slovenia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, who are currently trying not to be bombed out of actual existence. The seven hardy souls were welcomed in with open arms, and hasty national finals were arranged at no notice, more of which you will hear later. BEBU decided, or decreed, that Frank was to do a lap of honour before leaving the organisation for good by making sure he was literally in the firing line by sending him to a pre-selection in Slovenia six weeks before the contest he wasn't going to be in charge of. That wouldn't have been awkward at all, oh dear me, no. So, on the 3rd of April 1993, the seven nations, plus Denmark, Portugal, Spain and Cyprus, who ended up watching for reasons, but the most likely idea I can come up with is that someone dictated that someone in the Eurovision network had to take it, so they found four unwilling participants and shoved it on their screens, blinked their eyes at the appropriate time to see a colourised and bastardised version of the EBU logo flicker into life on their screens. Slovene TV had performed a minor miracle with a lot of help from the EBU. They got all seven acts and seven jurors in the same place and were about to produce a just over 90-minute television show broadcast simultaneously to 11 countries, so Terry Wogan would have been proud, even though he would, in his own words, be hoping that the elastic band wouldn't snap between Ljubljana and Europe. Bosnia and Herzegovina would be first on the stage and them just turning up was something of a minor miracle. They were in the height of the bloodiest war the continent had ever seen at that point. The very fact that Bosnian telly not only decided at no notice to hold a national final, but received songs to the damn thing, should tell you anything and everything you need to know about Eurovision. Here was a country that had been independent for, at the time of the national final, 11 months. Recognition of itself being an entity was non-existent, let alone getting anyone else to think it would exist as a functioning, if highly disjointed state much beyond the end of hostilities. And the jury's still out on that fact even now, but that's not for this podcast. At the start of that final, your presenter, Izmeta Kravac, opened windows in the studio set, presumably to show that Bosnia was open to the world, highly symbolic. Eleven songs were slated to be performed on the 28th of February in Sarajevo, but only ten groups actually ended up being performed in the studio. The 11th... This one was performed on VT because the fighting was so severe that the band couldn't get to the studios. And when Nina's video was played, Ismeta opened the windows again. Strong stuff. For a country that's being bombed to shit, you'd expect a significant proportion of those 11 songs would be slow and a bit ploddy. But hell no, not a bit of it. This is a national final that stands on its own even now as running the gamut of musical styles that a proper Yuga Vizier would have been proud of and, to do it justice, here's a proper reprise of all 11 songs. Sam 
believe me, that 110 seconds you've just heard doesn't do this final any justice at all. To get to an actual result, there was clearly the need for a jury who deliberated but never published any results. It's said that this, by future Bosnian representative Alma Karadic, came second. But in truth, no one cared. The first song of the night was the one they picked and there was no backstabbing or catcalling, just pure unbridled happiness from the other nine acts that were on the stage. Mohamed Fazlajic and his chums formed a band named after him, Fazla, while they were in the Bosnian army during the siege of Sarajevo. A long forgotten article on the BBC's culture website now takes up the story for me. Mohamed and his band Fazla didn't expect to win with their song For All the Pain in the World. We were the youngest competitors, he said, but he knew it had one strength, the lyrics, written by a famous Bosnian songwriter, Faradim Peki Koza who they somehow convinced to get involved. It's about me sending my love to a woman who's a refugee outside the country, telling her we won't give up, Fasler says. His girlfriend, now wife, was indeed living outside the siege of Sarajevo at the time. It's a bit bleak compared to your average Eurovision entry, isn't it? The original writer asks. We'd been in a siege for 300 days, Fasler replies. What else would we be singing about? It might not be typically Eurovision, but it's certainly what Europe would almost expect and demand for a war-torn country with a war-ravaged singer to sing about on stage. The next step, though, was getting out of Bosnia. From what I can piece together, they all ran headlong across a field while they were being shot at in order to board a plane to get them to Ljubljana. They were preceded by what would, in normal circumstances, be a postcard of the country on the TV final. But the only thing that RTVSLO could find to put on screens were images of Sarajevo and other cities being bombed, and fuck me, isn't that a hard watch? To describe the performance on stage as functional would to do it a disservice, but it's what it needed. It needed to be serious because it's a bloody serious song. Minimal movement from Mohammed, looking scared, it has to be said. A bit of hand movement from the two backing singer ladies. And the band doing not a lot else. It definitely all works on a basic level. They might not have been going for the sympathy votes, but there's no doubt in my mind a proportion of its scores would have been on the lenient side. Next up were Croatia, 
And if you ever needed a compare and contrast between two broadcasters, then this is it. They were in the middle of a war as well. They may well have been independent, but the Serbs were still bombing the shit out of them by early 1993 as well. Croatia have always had bare-faced cheek in this contest, maybe by claiming this... as a Croat win in 1989, much to my chagrin and that of Eurovision purists. Well, they chanced their arm almost from the moment they broke away from Yugoslavia. According to reports, they canvassed the EBU for an entry to the 1992 Eurovision Song Contest with this. sung by a magazine. HRT were politely told that they weren't actual members of the EBU yet and as such couldn't enter, and presumably as an aside, it might well have been mentioned to them it could have been highly awkward to have Yugoslavia and them in the same contest, especially considering Croatia would have been extolling the virtues of being free with what would have been the musical equivalent of a false smile. There is a marked contrast though between BH Eurosong 93 which was literally cobbled together with string and gaffer tape with whatever they had to hand and seemingly bundled on air in an attempt to galvanise the country around a common purpose, and Hrvatska Piesma za Piesmu Europa 1993 broadcast from the now legendary Crystal Ballroom in the Hotel Kvarna in Opatia, a place where our esteemed writing team have actually been to. It would be flippant to say that in the breakup of Yugoslavia it seemed that Croatia had gotten the outside broadcast equipment and the graphics and the technical know-how, and Bosnia ended up with the talent. But on the visual evidence, that's certainly the conclusion I draw from seeing the two side by side. All of the acts also seem to be singing in the gloaming on stage with lighting that can only be described as beige, or as we old ones say, 40 watt. If squinting at the acts wasn't bad enough for you, and despite of the whole war situation, there are some shocking vocal performances and equally shonky songs in the 15 acts that got on stage. It has to be a damning indictment of any song in a contest where you fail to gain a single point from any of the juries. Card Dvar gained the notable first in this song, which, even for the sound system, gave its considered opinion after about 15 seconds. I'm sure the songwriters thought this was a good idea, and if you check the video on YouTube, you can clearly see that they were fashion icons to Bianca Schomburg four years later. The interval act consisted of lots of Croatians singing their Eurovision songs on stage, and we got all the faves. Yassam Snaples. While she was hosting the goddamn thing, after all. Musica IT. Julie, sung by a Daniel who was clearly trying to find the first flush of youth again by dressing younger than his years.
cheating Croatian bitch Doris Dragovic singing a song that didn't fool the juries. Reva sung a set to prove that they weren't just a one-trick pony. We then appeared to go around Croatia linking up with seemingly 14 regional centres. When I first saw this I thought to myself that's impressive considering the bombing and all, until two things struck me. The first of them was the fact that there aren't 14 studios, only four, which seems eminently more sensible considering the prevailing conditions and I'm not going to cast dispersions on the juries actually being from the places they represented. That will be churlish even for me. The second thing was partway through the voting, a warning is flashed on screen in Croatian which translates to general danger, some things you never want to see broadcast on a screen again. The contest ended up going to a final jury with this. leading by one point, which as most people know who watch Eurovision-related things, is never going to be enough, and Maya Blagdan's fate was confirmed when she scored just two from the last jury. She'd be back though to wreak her revenge on everyone's eardrums. That final jury gave the 12 points and the win to this. Sung by the group Put which I always thought sounded a bad name for a band until I realised it was Croatian for road and that still doesn't make it any better. The lyrics of the song pull on all the heartstrings. It's about someone called John who is 18 and has clearly died, presumably in the war, and how the angels are singing and Croatia's sky should never cry, again, presumably because they didn't want war. It might as well be saying who do you think you're bombing Mother Serbia because it's rather overtly going for the sympathy vote that Bosnia cleverly avoided. This was aimed not at being a carefully crafted song to show the world Croatia, but as the musical equivalent of a kid at school telling the dinner lady of her bully who nicked their lunch money. If they could have got away with saying fuck you in the English bit, they probably would have done as well. And that's the bit of the song that really, really annoys me and always has done. In a song contest where you had to be explicitly told for the last 15 years that English was hideous and bad if English wasn't your first language, those Croats, in another example of them taking the piss, decided to replace an entire chorus of the song with this. Those pesky kids got away with it too, because as far as I'm aware, the one phrase of another language repeated three times rule hadn't been formalised at this point, and I think that the envelope was woolly enough that it was just pushed out a little bit too far. Our Taking a Break writing team have informed me that they are aghast that this song didn't go to win, and not only the pre-selection bit as well, but the whole contest. And despite the fact it makes my skin crawl, I can just about see what they're on. Barely. If the pain of the whole world wasn't going to do it, then saying fucking stop killing our children you bastards was going to be the closest Europe would get to a protest. On stage in Ljubljana it's staged as pitifully as you would expect a comic relief interstitial film about the plight of some orphans in Uganda should be filmed. It's all very doe-eyed for the woman type singers looking straight into your souls almost pleading you to vote for this because you know you should 
and think of all the dead people dying in vain if you don't. some of you are going to think I shouldn't be so harsh, but as a song and a concept, that's what it says to me. I'm not hard-nosed about it, I'm looking at it through televoter eyes, but for a 1993 pre-selection jury of countries that had recently become free, it would clearly have hit a chord. So after two songs saying two very different things about war, what we needed was something altogether lighter, and that was to come in an Estonian-shaped lady singer. Janneke Silomar was only 18 years of age, but she'd been singing almost all of her life. Her mother had led her into musicals, including, Wikipedia tells me, the lead in Thumbelina. Thumbelina, Thumbelina, tiny little thing. Thumbelina, dance. Thumbelina, sing. And a review called Mini Cabaret, which sounds utterly frightening by the title alone. She attended the George Ott's Music School. Yes, and her graduation concert involved her rock band called The Names. Bear this in mind as this review goes on, yeah? ETV chose her back in 1992 to sing all the songs in their first national final, Eurolal 1993, the following February. From what I can find out, it all seems to be a bit of a blur for Yannicka. She was performing as Mary Magdalene. No. No, not that either. In Jesus Christ Superstar at Tallinn City Hall, when the composers burst into her dressing room, not at gunpoint, and told her that they had a month to get everything together. Jesus Christ! Jesus Christ! She wasn't, it is said, going to sing all of the songs herself, but she was only going to sing one of them, but someone somewhere changed their mind, and all eight went through her vocal cords. That Uralal? Well, it certainly had higher production values than anything the ex-Yugoslavs could manage, principally because of the lack of bombs on their studios, presumably. Yannicka stands in front of what looks like a stained glass window with motifs of the Estonian flag hidden within, just in case you or the viewers forgot what country you were in. And they even had what passed for live music with a band on stage, and for values of band, I mean some guitarists, a drum kit and some Bontempi keyboards. Yannicka sings all eight of them nicely, but in a prim and proper school concert sort of way. And she doesn't seem to have any perfunctory media or camera training, because she only looks at you when the camera with the red light is pointed squarely in her face, which could well have been a disadvantage in a televised song contest. Yannicka had a favourite song though, Muret Mele Yat Sulemetud, which is not pronounced like that, and she said in a later interview that it chimed with her and it seems as though she sung that one better than any of the other seven. including the composer's personal favourite, Lotus. (laughs) 
So much were the composers angling for low to stand for the avoidance of doubt, I mean the composers of both songs, not all the composers, that would have been tray awkward for a contest, that they had a blazing row where forks were thrown, I kid you not. Everyone was tired and overworked, said Yannicka in an interview later. Isn't that code for being drunk? But wouldn't you know it, that one only went and won. I am really surprised. <laughs> yeah, me too, Ingvild, me too. But in one of the best cases of Schadenfreude that I've ever seen, her favourite song beat the one from her mother into second place. may not have gone well round the dinner table because you'd have hoped that she'd have sung that one better than any of the others, but seemingly Yannicka is either stupid or had lots of artistic integrity. She looked utterly bemused and nonplussed after being coronated as their first entry, but I've seen that look up close not eight years later when they actually went and won the damn thing. Come on everybody, let's sing along and feel the power of the song. Come on everybody, let's feel the spark that always can someone tell me how on earth that's 20 earth years ago? Anyway, I'm sure that Yannicka was excited on the inside though, right? As an aside to the Uralal house band playing a version of the Today Deum as the credits rolled, the first credit was the participation of the 38th Eurovision Song Contest being supported by the government. Not Sony or Philips or Toyota who would have been seen later, but the government. How times have changed. So she went off to Ljubljana with the backing of her country and seemingly nothing had changed in the staging concept by the time she got there. Yannicka, dressed in black, still hadn't learned where the camera was and, as such, the Slovene director tended to do a lot of wide shots which didn't help matters and looks too scared to move as though she'd been told to stand there and sing the damn song. And she didn't have the gumption or the will to do anything other than that. She's supposed to be young and a musical star, but everything about that performance has stymied that. I'm guessing being Maria Magdalena means you have to move a bit on stage, but none of that is evident here. Estonian telly were playing it safe and very BBC. If it's good enough for the land of song, it must surely be good enough for Europe. Unfortunately, even back in 1993 and with the juries, it's still a television show, and a girl with the long hair with two-thirds of her face covered by a massive microphone hid any charisma Yannicka might have showed off. Even her relieved smile at the end of the song was cut short by the Slovene director, which could have been a metaphor for this song's chances. It ended up in fifth place on the night. Yannicka cried at the result, finally showing some emotion that she should have shown on stage, perhaps. The composer blamed Slovene Television Orchestra for knackering up the orchestration of the song and favouring the ex-Yugoslav juries. In later years, Estonia will get it right and allow all the emotions to come out on stage, both good and bad. But Yannicka seems rather cold on the contest now. It was a long time ago and I've gone so far since that it's not very informative to talk about Euro nostalgia. My anxiety was that it was my first flight and I saw mountains for the first time. have sung for a thousand years. It was a crazy dream for me to see the mountains. She was a soulless bitch after all then. Next up were Hungary, and this is one of those songs and entries that not much is known about, so I can either tell you what I know, or I could make shit up. 
Listen to the rest of this and you can decide what's real and what's fantasy. Andrea Suzlak was born in 1964. For a long time, she was the guest dancer musician abroad in the Netherlands, Germany and England, and then the singer of the New Newton Ensemble after the split of the Newton Familia, who released hits into the wild from captivity like this one. She often appeared in musicals as well as not limited to Evita and Shamefully being the lead in the stage musical that inspired the 1969 film Funny Girl and in the process murdering one of my favourite songs ever. Her parade definitely needs fucking monsooning on if she keeps that up. In 1991, she won the Grand Prix of the OIRT Festival in Moscow, and then in 1992, she won the Dance Song Festival in Eger. Although I suspect it wasn't with a song like that. I don't know if she also won Miss World Unlikes Children and Old People, but that does seem to be the only things missing from an extensive and frankly offensive CV at this point. By the time that 1993 comes round, Hungarian TV need a representative for Eurovision, and as she also won Singer of the Year in 1992, it seemed a natural fit for her to sing the song in some sort of national final. I say some sort because despite there being reports of it actually happening, there seems to be a lack of information, but from what I can find out, there were 28 songs of varying quality, an interval act consisting of a juggler and a nude mountain climber, 20 regional juries and postcard voting to decide the winner. By the time she got on stage in Ljubljana, she'd clearly been watching last year's European contest of popular song, because the first thing I noticed is that she had a strikingly similar look to Burlesque's own Daisy Ouvray. Andrea, though, rather than being at a legitimate establishment plying her trade, is dressed all in leather, almost as though she's performing on a street corner and not in a Lily Marlene style, if you know what I mean. The song's title is translated to Orphan Morning in English, and despite its very definite nod towards stage musicals with which Andrea is sadly familiar with, and the appearance, outwardly at least, that this is one of those big soaring ballads lyrically, it's based about being left on one's own after a one-night stand. Well, at least the styling or consulting are consistent. Hungarian is wrong with this song. Despite all of their attempts over successive years, Hungarian is not a beautiful language, 
and she could be singing that she's dipping kittens in treacle or something equally hideous because she can't even get a sense of any of the words. It just sounds as though she's having a seizure for three minutes. Unsurprisingly, it propped up the scoreboard rather unjustly. As you will all no doubt be aware, this waffling doesn't just write itself, you know. And in the course of what I laughingly call research, I get to watch all sorts of fabulousness from national finals, but mainly dross to poke fun at. Even after several song contests worth of podcasts, the first Selectia Nacional from Romania is like shooting fish in a very small barrel with a massive harpoon. For their first go at getting a song into the pan-European song contest, they decided to show 11 mimed performances of songs, and for values of songs, I mean, well, when your evening's viewing in Bucharest starts with what could be the Romanian version of Margarita Prakatan, miming with two people dancing in luminous shell suits having borrowed Kevin Keegan's hair from 1976. You know, it's going to be a long way back to respectability. They tried, though, by putting the archetypal male easy European soft rock song next, which arguably is the best thing in the contest in the English version. And then put in their female version on immediately after it, sung by Nicoletta, she of Romania 2003 fame. And that's the quality threshold hit and exceeded after just three songs. This Farago carried on for another eight and we ran the gamut of songs from the big woman ballad type. <laughs> to Monica Angel looking not at all like grot bags after a course of the hip and thigh diet. Possibly the weirdest thing I've ever seen, and God knows I've seen enough. A girl sitting at a piano playing with a puppet that looks like some weird Pinocchio Hitler finger bobs hybrid with a massive soft toy dog perched on the piano. That I half expect to be a furry in disguise, but for the fetishists amongst you, spoiler alert, it's not.
whole thing got so trippy that by song 10, everyone gave up and said to Elena Castilla, oh, for God's sake, just sing the last two songs so we can start voting. But no, she added to the batshit by bringing with her the Romanian version of the St. Winifred School Choir, complete with candles that they waved about in the background with gay abandon. should have gotten those all on stage in Ljubljana, let alone Mill Street, is something I don't want to worry about, but spoiler alert, I didn't have to. If you could pass all that off as normal, then the voting certainly wasn't, because for the first and by no means the last time, the voting was the bit that caused controversy in Romania. TVR decided not to entrust their first entry to the mass populace of Romania, but instead canvass opinions from a select group of 1100 people. I must caution you, however, that if you were thinking these 1100 people were something near a demoscopic jury, not a bit of it. TVR got the equivalent of a call centre ringing round Romania to see which 1100 people not only picked the phone up, but had actually watched the damn show and were still alive or sober enough to give an opinion in the form of some scores. History doesn't record how many actual calls were made to get the requisite number, but after that coma-inducing entertainment, one guesses the number would be Romanian for shit-tons. At some juncture, because the final is not on YouTube in its fully formed form, thank the Lord, those 1100 people decided that this would be the entry. Completely overlooking what passed for quality. New Plessio was sung by Dida Dragan, who, the internet tells me, is a Romanian female pop star famous for easy listening rock of the 1980s. The song then was clearly in her wheelhouse. Sadly though, that wheelhouse was on the Eurovision equivalent of the Titanic. Thank you. And the iceberg was going to be Ljubljana shaped. As a collision course with Eurovision reality was plotted, the good ship Dida was true to herself by emoting her way through the song with lots of dramatic gestures and hardly ever looking at the camera. Two things guaranteed to do you no favours in a televised song contest where your stated aim is to connect with people. Lyrically, the song is supposed to be a plea for her lover not to go, but instead of looking back on their love and effectively saying, do you want to have one more go at it? It's exactly the opposite, and it's more, woe is me, you shouldn't have left me to cry here on my own, you bastard. Blaming the viewer personally for the end of her relationship, it seems. If a song could be the equivalent of Nero fiddling while Rome burned around him, then this is most certainly it. Dida may well be pouring her heart and soul into this song, but it doesn't come across as such. 
it comes across as a woman who looks a lot like Theresa May flailing around on stage with her five aloof backing singers, all competing to be heard above the caterwauling. This, unsurprisingly, did not endear her to the jurors. Indeed, it finished a long way last. That didn't go down well with the Romanian press, for the first and by no means the last time either. Various media outlets mocked her performance, the song being a rock one in a pop-centred contest, her actual voice, going as far as suggesting IRSOP, the company who did the voting, had rigged it all, and even going so far as to describe the whole thing as artistic suicide. They certainly didn't hold back, but their ire wasn't pointed to the real culprits here, TVR, who produced a shoddy performance, got seemingly amateur acts to mime them, and then wonder why they did so badly in a live singing contest. Now, our reluctant writing team has been busily hiding in a refrigerator on the grounds that they've never actually seen Qualificatia and know absolutely nothing about it, so this should be fun then. What? I literally told you I've... Oh, for fine. Alexia, how many songs have these seven countries submitted as independent nations? Ah, Mr. Phil, only 40 minutes in and you ask me a question. Thanks for that. The seven broadcasters in this contest between them have submitted 153 songs to Eurovision representing independent nations. Good. That's useful and possibly accurate. Thank you. Alexia, how many of those 153 songs have won the contest? Everybody won the contest. That sounds implausible, but okay. Alexia, how many have finished on the podium? Five-ish. Five-ish. Look, don't blame me for your lack of preparation on this. I just read this shit out. She makes a fair point. I don't need to ask how many of these podiums have come from Slovenia because it's none of them. Alexia, did any of them podium in the semi? No one did. Well, this is going very well so far. Let me check out whether there was an EMA or something similar in 1993. Thank God there was. And I actually know some of the songs from it because they did badly in convention song contests in the 90s. of the genre all. None of them carried the Slovenian banner on home soil in Ljubljana though. That honour went to the Inix band, or in English the One X band. qualificatia the other week and the people who were organising the qualificatia actually won the qualificatia so it can happen anyway would you believe it but slovenia only went and won their own contest amazing isn't it now can i get back in my fridge now the final song of the evening would be from slovakia and thanks to their own juror be the one that shafted the most by this contest 
But before we get to him, let's get to the song. No national final for the Slovaks on their first attempt. They clearly didn't have the money because they were still being divorced from the Czech Republic at the time. And, as the nominal poorer half, they were too busy thinking about existing afterwards, but they too wanted to have their five minutes in the sun by being out of the purview of Mother Russia, and so they asked the EBU if they could come and have a little sing-song. Slovak Telly approached the band Ilan. They were a decent name on the Slovak music scene, having been formed in 1968 during the Prague Spring by some free-thinking student types. They'd had low-grade successes singing in high school and uni clubs in downtown Bratislava and were clearly known on the club scene. They started their rise to fame in 1979 by winning the Best Arrangement Award in the Bratislavska Lyra Festival and being the runner-up in the whole thing in 1980. During the decade, they gained a popular following with their Slovak-language songs and they had considerable success throughout the whole of the 80s. They went through song lineup changes though, like all bands do, and had racked up enough hits in air quotes that in 1992 they released the Greatest Hits album. 1993 then should have been their elevation to godlike status. The song they would enter to the pre-selection would be called Amnestia na Neveru. A friend of this site thinks that it's one of the best, if not the best, song in Eurovision Song Contest history. Until I mentioned the position it gained and he nearly belts me round the head every time, which is, frankly, just a touch harsh. Translated as Amnesty to Infidelity, this is, with all due respect to the other six songs we've heard this evening, the closest thing to a proper song by a proper band there is in the contest. They seemingly thought they just needed to be competent and they were considerably more than that. The song is about love and how it rewards unfaithfulness. See, told you. Yano has a rasping voice that is not only absolutely perfect for this song being, and I'm not being disparaging here, a song that could have been ripped off from the Scorpions or any other generic Eastern European rock band of the mid-80s, but actually has the talent and wherewithal to know where the cameras are, and that comes from years of practice. They knew what they needed to be and knew what they needed to do. They needed to perform the arse off this song and beat four others in a relatively weak field of songs. Based on the televisual evidence, they most certainly have been a shoe-in, no? What comes next is possibly the longest 45 minutes interval of all time. Whilst the seven jurors were making their minds up, the groups all went on stage and sung one of their own songs almost as though the EBU realised that they needed to justify the rest of the satellite time with something. We then went to the jurors, all of whom were in the studio in Slovenia in order to cast their votes in typical Eurovision style. 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 12. As it transpired, and not at all suspiciously, every country got one set of 12 points each, presumably as not to try and make them feel bad, apart from Romania, who were cast adrift at the bottom of the board from almost the very beginning. Qualification was not sealed for any of the countries until the final juror, 
the Slovak juror, and this is where we have to take a look into this. At this point, Slovakia led with 50 points, and as they couldn't vote for themselves, knew that that was the score needed to be beaten. Slovenia had 44, Croatia 43, and Estonia and Bosnia had 40. Hungary and Romania needed mathematical miracles to get into the top three. Alexa, just play that jury again for me. Zadnji predstavnik žirije prihaja iz Slovaške. We are going to the final vote this evening, that of Stanislav Bartovic from Slovakia. Good evening. Dobri večer, good evening. Here are my votes. For Hungary, five points. Hungary, five points. Petočk, Sampoin. Romania, six points. Romania, six points. Šestočk, Sipoin. Estonia, seven points. Estonia, seven points. Sedemtočk, setpoint. So that's the bottom end of the scoreboard effectively dealt with. The next score is the crucial one. If Bosnia get it, Slovakia are through. Croatia, eight points. Croatia, eight points. Osemtočk, Wipoin. But no. He gives eight to Croatia, meaning that they've got 51 points and guaranteeing that Slovenia and Bosnia, who would have won the tiebreak with Slovakia, have qualified, and he shot his own broadcaster in the foot and deprived Europe of seeing a genuine contender for a decent place. Just for the sake of clarity, let's see where the rest of the points end up with. Slovenia, 10 points. Slovenia, 10 points. Desetočk, Dipoin. Bosnia and Herzegovina, 12 points. And Bosnia and Herzegovina, 12 points. 12 points. There are, as a matter of record, 720 ways those points could have been distributed, and at least 90% of them would have returned a Slovak qualifier. History fails to record what happened to him after he got back to Bratislava, but STV never really recovered from this. They fell in and out of the love with the contest with astounding regularity. 17 years down the line, perhaps this. would have got the result it deserved if they'd had the rich Eurovision history denied them by one of their own. All three qualifying bands, Enik's band for Slovenia, Fazla for Bosnia, and Port from Croatia, all came on, received flowers, and NX band got a very heavy trophy depicting the RTV SLO mascot, a naked boy playing a flute. Frank Neff was carted on as well, and he too was given a very heavy garden ornament as a parting gift. He looked distinctly underwhelmed by it all and was last seen trying to pawn it off for his retirement pension. As the credit rolled, Slovene's Inix band played the winning song again. Six weeks later, they would all earn their fate. <laughs> 